We're going to go ahead and jump into the word again this morning. We're actually wrapping up. Well, I'll back up. We're in the midst of a campaign through the book of Ephesians, which we are fastly coming to the end of. In fact, we will be um, wrapping up this campaign that really has been most of the year um, this month. It's November, right? Today's November. And so we're going to actually be wrapping it up, um, I believe, here in a couple weeks. But we're actually finishing up a series in the midst of this campaign that we're calling What's the Point? looking specifically at the last part of chapter 5 and the first part of chapter 6. So if you've got your Bibles and you can go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. I think I have a slide for that. Yes, I do. This morning we're going to be talking about uh, vocation, your vocation. If that's too big of a word for you all, that's your job. That's easier. I just needed something to take up more space on the bottom of the screen, so I Googled job thesaurus found that so if you've got your bibles let's go ahead and go to ephesians chapter 6 verse 5 through 9 we're going to read this i'm i'm reading out of the uh english standard version if you have a ipad or a phone or anything you can switch to that it'll be a little bit easier for you i'm going to start in verse 5 it says bond servants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling With a sincere heart, highlight, underline, circle that word, sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or is free, masters do the same to them. Highlight, circle, underline that. Do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray together and jump into this this morning. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that it's a living and active word, not a dead and a passive word. God, we thank you that you breathed life upon those that you inspired to write this book, and it stands unique and significant in history, God, not just because it is a collection of stories about you, not just because it's a narrative of your redemptive work throughout the entirety of human history, but God, because you speak to us through this word, we come to it with great fear and trembling as we hear it. And God, we would cry out and ask that you would speak to us through your word today. You would give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, that through the midst of everything that is said and spoken today, there would be the still small voice within our hearts, whispering in our ears, that is your voice reverberating through our souls that we might be transformed. God, speak to us this day. Let us receive your word. Let us do your word. Let us be changed by your word. God, I don't want to leave this place the same as I came in. So once again, for another time together, for another gathering of your people, for another expression of your body here in this church, we beseech you to come and speak to us. God, not from afar off, but with us and engaging us and present with us. Holy Spirit, we don't invite you to come in our worship and then ask you to leave in the rest of the service, but we 
beg you to come and to be with us and to not leave us or forsake us, but to teach us and train us, to build us up, to convict us. God, we give you room and permission, and even, God, we, we, we petition you to offend us this morning. Transform our thinking. Apprehend our thoughts that we might be changed, transformed, and made more into your image. In Jesus' name, everybody said. What everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right, so we've been kind of looking in this series, uh, what's the point? We've been looking at some some pretty practical, down-to-earth, where-we-live kind of things. In the first several chapters of Ephesians, Paul really drives home some, uh, some doctrinal theological realities of the supremacy of Christ in all things. He, he proclaims to us <clears throat> repeatedly how it is Jesus who does the saving. It is Jesus who does the sanctifying. It is Jesus who does the calling and equipping for service. And we are merely recipients of that. And our role is to surrender our perceived control to his actual control, to his actual ability that in and of ourselves we can do nothing, come on somebody, but in him we can do all things. That we live and move and have our being in and through him. We've said before, as a church, if we're going to make a mistake, theologically we're going to make too much of Jesus. We're going to err on the side of magnifying, glorifying, exalting Jesus too much. If we're going to make a mistake, I'd rather fall into that ditch. I'd rather stand before Jesus at the end of my life giving him too much credit than not enough. And I feel through Ephesians, and one of the reasons I feel the Lord would had us as a new church starting out look at this book is because this puts some foundation stones in the foundation of of us as a people and us as a church that helps us to recognize that for the rest of our existence, his supremacy. If we ever get off of that, I I fear we are in grave danger. So we've, we've kind of seen these grand, huge theological, spiritual realities, and not to diminish their reality, but rather to to make ever more real their reality, Paul here takes them and buries them, plants them, lands them in the backyard of our daily life. Because really, we can honestly ask kind of, what's, what's the point? Okay, great. Jesus is the one who redeemed me. Awesome. I have to go home and deal with my wife, my kids, my husband, my job. My, it's great to hear on Sunday mornings, thanks, pastor, good word, but that doesn't, how do I apply this as a husband? As a dad, how does this change the way I interact with my surroundings and those that God puts in my life? And so uh, we've kind of been addressing, and one of the reasons I wanted to take a long time and look at these three individually over the course of three weeks weeks instead of looking at them together is is I, I feel like there's two ditches on the side of the road of kind of modern spirituality, and this, this is true very much of Christianity and, and of the church, and I'll, I'll address it as, it as it pertains to our context, but please know, if you kind of take a wider scope, it's there in all of them as well. And it's either this, it's kind of when it comes to life. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about just daily, normal, living life. There's kind of two ditches on the road, kind of two thought processes, two 
kind of groups that seem to be prevailing in the thought and thinking of people. And, and the first is that, that life, normal life, your job, your kids, your family, your friends, those that, that you kind of do life with, everything outside of sacred kind of times, outside of religious observations, outside of maybe even we push it to monastic living where we withdraw ourselves and kind of shun everything and kind of create these holy huddles. Everything outside of that is evil. So, so this is good time. This is Jesus, God, happy time. And then when we leave here, we're on a downhill spiral toward paganism somehow. It's evil. Maybe we don't say it's evil, but it's less holy. God doesn't really interact with us as much at my job or when I'm hanging out with my kids or when I'm spending time with my wife. That's not really where God really doesn't have any interest in that. At best, we say it's a provision for my flesh because I, couldn't, I couldn't just stay in, in worship all the time, so God lets me have a family so I can kill time between Sundays. Like somehow we're more sacred when we get up in the morning and we're praying than when we're interacting with our kids and raising our families. We even have verses that, that back this up, right? Like we put to death the work of the flesh. It would be holier if I would just somehow devote myself solely to getting up in the morning and locking myself in a closet and praying all the time. So we've got that ditch, and then there's the other ditch that says, no, 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 the the ultimate purpose of your life is for you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and happy, and and therefore what we should be teaching in church is 14 ways to be successful in business and 85 ways to have a healthy marriage, and, and your happiness is really at God's, the top of God's priority list is that you would just be happy. And we got verses for that too, right? God is for us and not against us. Completely out of context, but still it's a verse, so we can put it on a poster, hang it on our wall, and feel happy about ourselves. Because God really just wants me to be happy. And the problem with this is that it's nowhere in the Bible. And I feel like the, the, the problem is these are ditches on both sides of the truth. The reality is, is that there is a great purpose in God, or rather God has placed a great purpose in your life. And I don't just mean when you're on the mission field. I don't just mean when you're off serving him, when you're here on a Sunday morning or the four times a month when you somehow manage to get up early enough to have some God time before you go about your day. But what I would throw out to us for consideration, what I believe Paul is trying to show us here is that the spiritual reality of the supremacy of Christ has great bearing on the way we live our lives day in and day out, not just in a reaction to that reality, but rather that he is at work in the midst of them and there is a greater purpose than your happiness. Come on, somebody. In the midst of all of that. So we've been looking at these things. So I want to kind of back up. As we look at uh, our vocation this morning, I want to kind of back up and remember everything that we've said. And if you need um, kind of a big thought this morning, this is what I want to try to get through to us, that all of your life is spiritual. That everything that you do, all that God has called you to, all that God has placed in your life, all that he has sovereignly ordained that takes place in your week in, week out life is there for a greater purpose in the plan of God that has much more scope and much more bearing on eternity than you might realize. So we looked at marriage. And we saw this in marriage, that 
Marriage in the life of those redeemed by Christ is to be a platform on which the redemptive nature of God is put on display, showcasing for all to see the relationship of Jesus and his church while providing for those involved an ever-increasing reliance upon his grace. And all the married people said, amen. (laughs) That last line was, yeah. But really, we saw in marriage, it's not just about, well, you, your wives submit to husbands, husbands love your wives, and that's so that you can have a successful marriage. No, it's because Christ is the head of the church, and the church is his bride, and therefore we have in our marriages an opportunity to showcase, to put on display, to magnify, glorify, make much of the redemptive work of Christ to his bride. It's our opportunity, it's our chance to put it on display. We saw in the family, the purpose of the family is to glorify the nature and character of God by modeling his family, namely the Godhead. That inside of our families, we have an opportunity to showcase the the deep, intimate, personal relationship that God has within himself within our families. The reason why we need to learn, all of us are kids, right? We all have moms, The reason why God has instructed children to obey their parents is because it's an opportunity to showcase how Jesus obeyed his father. It doesn't diminish his, his godness. It doesn't diminish his sovereignty or his divinity, but rather it shows that even, even though there may be an equalness, come on, parents are not more important than their kids. Parents are not better than their kids. Parents are not somehow greater than their kids, but yet children are called to obey their parents. Jesus is not less than the Father, yet he chose to obey his Father. And we have in our family life the opportunity to showcase that nature and character. So now let's go ahead and jump to vocation. What is the purpose of vocation? And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because I feel like hopefully you're hearing the drumbeat, right? It's all about Jesus. Your marriage is supposed to be all about Jesus. Your child rearing and your being child reared? Is that a word? I just said reared. Um, That's horrible. All of that is about Jesus. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. It fundamentally can't be both all about you and all about Jesus. This is why it's not about your happiness. But rather, it's about the glorification, exaltation, magnification of Jesus. Now, please understand, I believe personally that the most satisfying, fulfilling life you could lead is a life where you make much of Jesus every day and in every moment. But it's a byproduct, not the goal. So vocation, what's the purpose of vocation? We got another one of these big, long statements that I somehow like to write. We'll unpack this as we go. Bottom little piece here, kind of summing it all up quickly. Work is given that from it might come worship and witness. Worship is given that from it might come, uh, rather work is given that from it might come worship and witness. Here's kind of the big statement summarizing what I feel like Paul's really trying to get out through this passage we just read. God's purpose in your vocation, whatever it may be. In other words, I don't care whether you're a salesperson, whether you're in construction, whether you're, in, whether you're an artist, whether you're a full-time student, whether you're a parent, whatever it might be, your vocation purpose of it is to provide for you an opportunity to utilize the unique set of skills given to you in such a way 
that much is made of Jesus while simultaneously drawing those who see it to his grace. This is the purpose, the big point, the reason why God gives you a job. Realize that that a job was not given to you out of knee jerk. It's not just something that God was like, well, I don't want you to be bored all the time, so I'll give you something to do Monday through Saturday, and then you can come and be spiritual on Sundays and then go back to being fleshly. This whole idea of the separation of sacred and secular is not found in the Scriptures, but rather everything we are called to do and ordained to do is something that God wants to use for his purposes. So let's look at this. Let's jump in and look specifically real briefly at the two roles. We see here bondservants and masters. Let's modernize this. Can we do that real fast? Either you're an employee or a boss. Either you're someone who has a boss or you are a boss. And here's the reality. Most of us in most situations are somewhere in the middle, right? You're a boss to some people and you have a boss. And that's an important idea because Paul's going to kind of draw on that here in the midst of it. So really... Notice, I had you kind of highlight, underline, circle in your mind that the instructions that were first given to the bondservant are then reiterated to the master. We catch that? He says, masters do the same thing I just told them to do, plus he adds some more. So let's look at what he calls us all to do as slaves or workers or as bondservants. We are called to honor and to obey and to serve your boss like Jesus is a morning to be convicted. What would you, how would you act at work? What would your attitude be like at work if Jesus was your boss? I may not kind of charge the company for stuff that I charge the company for if Jesus was my boss. Might not slack off as much if Jesus was my boss. Well, here's what Paul's trying to get at. Ultimately, he is. Because he's your boss's boss. And if you have a hard time submitting to your boss, this is easy if you have a nice, happy boss. I, I worked for a company that will remain nameless because this is going on to the internet via a podcast, and I had a boss while working there. And anybody ever have a boss that was not fun to work for? Anybody? Anybody still have a boss? Don't put your hands up. I've had good bosses. I've had bad bosses. And when you, when you have bad bosses, they get nicknames, right? You don't have to admit this out loud, but we all know they do, right? When you're talking about them, you cease to use their real name, and you use a different name. And, and we have all sorts of horrible names that for, for people that we call them. Um, we had a name for this horrible boss. Um, we just called her the devil because it was just easier. It was, we tried to come up with some. Um, we used her first name, gave her the last name of Bin Laden, um, and this was right around that time, so this kind of tells, but that wasn't bad enough. We're like, no, no, she's the devil. And that's what we called her. I mean, it was just, it was just easier. It also made it much, much better when you read your Bible and it talked about God overcoming the devil. It made it like, yeah, I met her, you know? It was horrible. She, I think she made it her job to make everyone she worked for cry at some point. And yes, I sir came to it. I'm a grown man, and a girl made me cry. I will gladly admit it. It's why we called her the devil. My point is this. It was easy to treat a boss who was nice to me like Jesus. It was very hard to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning 
every day and drive to work with the devil and pretend in my mind and remind myself that her boss was Jesus. So ultimately, I was working for Jesus. We have this idea that, like, well, pastors and maybe missionaries and, like, Sunday school teachers, they work for Jesus. The rest of us work for the devil. And, I mean, we, we joke and I laugh about it and that we called her the devil, but really, honestly, isn't that the ditch that many of us fall in? That, that if, you, if you're in ministry, then you work for Jesus. But if you're swinging a hammer all day, you're working for yourself or the flesh or for the devil. And so, therefore, I can make an excuse about my attitude at work because, really, I'm not working for Jesus. God doesn't have anything to do with my work, so it doesn't really matter what I, what I act like at work. I can separate it. He's not around. Jesus is off in China watching prayer meetings and missionaries work, and he's leaving me alone while I'm at work. So I can say, act, do whatever I feel like. And Paul here is saying, no, you need to realize that you need to work as if you worked for Jesus because ultimately you do. God in his sovereignty, God in his authority, Jesus in his power and majesty is over all things, and therefore we are called to work in such a way as to glorify and magnify him. I like this word here, from a sincere heart. Sincere literally means a, a singleness or a simplicity. And I tell you, that's, that's important, I think, because I think this is where we get off. We, we, we go off track when we overcomplicate things. We, we want to make things complicated. I love you. We want to make things complicated so we have an excuse not to do them. We, we want to, like, use big words and, and really complicate everything so that then we can have the excuse of, well, I would have obeyed Jesus, but I didn't understand. And really, people who get big degrees and People who read thick books on theology are able to, with great ease, complicate things that God intended children to be able to understand. And shame on us for doing it. Because the reality is this should be simple. I think the reason Paul says from a sincere heart is keep it simple. Obey your boss like Jesus. Yeah, but, but you don't understand because they're not saved. They can't be Jesus. Yeah, but Jesus put them in your life over you, so they're Jesus. No, but in the Bible, it said, no, it says we should submit to them like we submit to Jesus. Fear and trembling, actually. Keep it simple, from a sincere heart, a single heart, a simple heart. It means free from hypocrisy, open and generous. Are you somebody who clocks in the minute you're supposed to be there and clocks out the minute you're allowed to leave? Or does your relationship with Jesus, does the redemptive work of Christ in your life lead you to be open and generous with your time? Now, this is, this is the kind of thing that people who do the clock in and clock out are offended by, and those of us who are workaholics are like, yeah, see, I'm just being a good worker. No, I'm not talking about being un, in an unbalanced tension in your life. I'm not talking about working 80 hours a week and only getting paid for 20. That's stupid. But I'm talking about being generous with your time. When they say, hey, we need some people to work overtime, or you go, well, I really need to get home and pray. Sorry. Are you, are you willing to be generous with your time? This is, this is the kind of heart that God calls us to have. And then heart literally here isn't the muscle that beats and pumps blood to your body, but in the Greek mind, this word that he used here is the word used for the center 
of your spiritual being. And Paul here is saying, look, that sincerity can't just be an external thing. It needs to be an internal thing. That It can't just be something that's outside of you, but rather it's something that flows from the inside of you, that this, this needs to be who you are authentically, really, truly. And here's where I get to the point. You can't do that without Jesus being there. You can't serve this way. You can't work this way. You can't accomplish these sorts of things without Jesus being at the very core of who you are. Why do I keep beating the drum of it's all about Jesus? Because ultimately, you'll go to work and try to do this. And like I've said before, the answer in the gospel to your problems is not try harder, but surrender more. The gospel literally teaches us to despise our own works and to embrace the life of Christ. If you struggle with this, my word to you is not, well, just get up and try harder. My word to you is to surrender more completely and more fully and to allow the life of Christ that's within you to go through you. This is why your identity, your, your, your understanding, your theology, your everything has to be grounded and founded on Jesus or everything goes off. If your identity is not wrapped up in him, then all of this working will be just to please people. You'll want to have a, let's, let's, let's broaden this back out for a moment, back to, 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 to marriage and family life and vocation. You'll want to have a happy marriage so that people think you're a good person. You'll smack your kid in the ear every time that they badmouth you in public, not because you really care, not because you want to teach them obedience so they learn how to obey the Father, but because you don't want to be embarrassed because your identity is wrapped up in you being a good parent, which is wrapped up in your kid being a good kid. My wife and I decided when we started having children that the last thing we wanted to have was good kids. I want to have godly kids. I want to have kids that grow up to love Jesus. I don't care if they're good or not. Good kids don't embarrass you in public. Godly kids ask you why there's sin in your life when you claim to love Jesus. It sucks. Well, because I... I'm a grown-up, and I can talk that way, but you can't. That doesn't make any sense. Um, just go, give me your Bible. You can't read that anymore. Um, last thing I want to have is good kids. I want my kids to grow up to love Jesus, care whether or not they're socially acceptable. Remember I judged parents a lot that tried to talk their kids out of mission trips to scary places, and then I had kids. I started thinking, if my daughter decides she wants to go to some country that murders people who love Jesus, would I really be okay with her going? I want to think I would. I really do. I want to believe with all my heart that, yeah, go. But I don't let my daughter get on the really high slide, you know, like, when she's 12, you know, like, go on the mission field to be with Jesus, but stay off the slides. When you're there, don't go on the tall slide. I've got my daughter on film saying I get to take her to all of the dances at school in high school and her prom. And verbal contracts are binding in the state of Washington, so she's screwed. Um, She might have been six. I don't care. She still said it. It was still her. That's the dad that I am. Our identity, our security, our trust needs to be grounded in Jesus, not in ourselves. Or else all of this goes astray from a sincere heart. Let me just be real. My heart isn't sincere. 
message of the gospel is not you're a good person, so Jesus died for you to make up for the few bad things that you do. The gospel is you suck at life, and Jesus didn't. And even though he didn't, the love and compassion the Father feels for you drove Jesus to the cross so you could have a relationship and be redeemed and be restored and be brought back into the purposes of God apart from his judgment and wrath, that the totality of the wrath of God was absorbed in Christ on the cross. So now you and I can know the love and grace and mercy of the Father. That's a good place to say amen. As to the Lord, he says all of these things. He says to submit with a sincere heart, to serve with a sincere heart, to obey, to honor from a sincere heart as to the Lord. And he goes on to masters. Masters or bosses, we would say. And here's ultimately what he says. This is what he's trying to get at, I think. He says, okay, if you're a boss, treat your employees like your boss Jesus treats you. Don't, don't be somebody who stands up and threatens and yells and screams and hollers and who swears and punches and kicks and bites. and Never had those bosses? Okay. Um, don't be that way, but treat your employees like your good and gracious boss, Jesus, treats you. Look, we all have him. We all have people who report to us in some area of our life. And how does Jesus treat us? And I'll just throw this out for practical assistance for those of us who have people who are under us in positions. I would sum up the way Jesus treats us as a boss in two things. He, t- he treats us in both grace and truth. What I'm saying is this. I'm not saying let your employees walk all over you and run a bad business. That's not glorifying to Jesus. Well, I just let them leave whatever they want and take whatever they want because God's gracious. Well, my fourth business, I've committed filed bankruptcy eight times, but glory to God. You suck at business. Um, there needs to be grace. I was an intern director for many of my years in ministry before this, and probably from that will eventually at some point offer an internship program here at Sozo. And one of the things I always try to tell my interns, because you know, part of an internship program, a discipleship program, is you're trying to you know, instill some discipline and some, some, some foundation and some solidness into some 19-year-old kid who thinks that all that life is about is monastic living and he's going to be an intern and just all day pray and worship and soak in Jesus. And you're like, yeah, but the chairs need to be stacked. So stack the chairs. So you're trying to help kids show up on time. I remember, I remember when, when I was working for the devil, she um, yelled at me because I was showing up to work late. She was noticing that I was showing up to work late. She just ripped me apart. And it was one of those moments, okay? We've all had these moments where you know you're right. You know what I mean? And somebody's just yelling at you. So what do you do? You just sit there. Let them take the line as long as they want. Go ahead, take it. No, go. Yeah, I have been showing up at 4.15 every day. You're right. Yeah, uh uh-huh. You schedule me at 4.30, not 4. (laughs) And you watch the hook go, (laughs) and then conviction. Um, You try to teach those kind of things, like show up early, 15 minutes early is on time, right? Those kind of things to, to students in an internship program, but one of the things I always told them was, as much as is possible, let's live and work and operate in an atmosphere of grace. That doesn't deny or diminish 
or bring down truth, but the truth should be delivered in an atmosphere of grace. Something that I learned very early in ministry is this, and it's something we're trying to build into us as a church, so I'll I'll say it so we understand it practically. It's this, that the atmosphere in which ministry takes place is just as important, if not more important, than the ministry that takes place there. It's one of the reasons why we've chosen as a church to do worship the way we do. We, we are a charismatic church. Everyone can gasp. Um, we, we believe crazy stuff like Jesus comes when we worship. We don't just declare his goodness, but we really believe that he comes and is here as we worship. We're not singing songs about Jesus so much as we are singing songs to Jesus and maybe even occasionally with Jesus on a good day when I don't mess up a song. We believe that fundamentally. And yet, we've been questioned by people. They're like, well, like you, you worship's kind of quick. Before. Yeah, because we decided to split it up and to hear his word and give us all time to respond. Worship after preaching for us is not like that song we play so we have time to do other stuff. No, it's, it's a genuine response to what the Lord's doing because we believe the atmosphere in which ministry takes place is just as important as the ministry that takes place there. We all, we all know this, right? We all kind of instinctively know this, and here's what I mean. We've all had somebody, we've all asked somebody to do something for us, married people, I'm really talking to us here. You, you've talked to your spouse about something, you're like, I would really appreciate it if this, fill in the blank. My wife, it's usually take out the garbage and the recycling and other stuff. Right? Or when you were a kid, your parent asked you, like, go do, clean your room, right? And you obeyed. You did it. But you obeyed with a frown, a scowl, angry, thinking of ways that you could get them back. Right? Like, you're, you're miserable, you're angry, you're frustrated all the time. That atmosphere that's created around you, come on, somebody, that's, it's, it ruins the ministry, the service that takes place there. The atmosphere is just as important as the ministry. Let me push that one step further. Your attitude creates your atmosphere. The attitude that you have about something creates the atmosphere in which you are doing what you're doing. And Paul here cuts right to the heart of it and says, we need to have the proper attitude. The atmosphere that we need to have is grace so that when the ministry of truth comes, it's received because we know that there's love and purpose behind it. Come on, somebody. So let's land this plane. Your vocation should validate your faith and speak volumes of your Savior. The way you do your job is meant fundamentally to be an opportunity for you to glorify Jesus, that's worship, and show his goodness and grace to everyone who sees you doing it, that's witness. That's the purpose of why God gave you a job. Yes, there's, there's uh, please understand, I'm not, I'm, I'm trying to simplify things. I don't want to oversimplify them. It's good to get paid so you can pay your bills and not be a deadbeat. If you're single and living with your mom, get a job. You know, I mean, I love you. <laughs> I'm just trusting the Lord. Uh, no, you're not. <laughs> Trust the Lord to get you a job. Uh, I love you. Yes, but God provides for the birds of the air. Yeah, with wings and a beak. (laughs) So comb your feathers, brush your beak, and get a job. Um, I love you. 
So let's pull this back again briefly. I want to just help us understand this and make sure we grasp a hold of it. In the very advent and coming of, of Jesus to the earth, in his, as Isaiah puts it, in his rending the heavens, in his ripping apart the separation, in the breaking down the wall that we try to create, in the advent of Christ that we're about to celebrate with Christmas, God proved once and for all he makes no separation between the sacred and the secular. If, the, if, if his choice of where he was born proves nothing else but that, if we get nothing else from it, let's get that. Jesus chose to be born not to a priest but to a carpenter. And we're going to actually be looking in December. Our series in December is going to be all about the Advent, all about how and why Jesus came and looking at it from, a, from the traditional liturgical perspective of the Advent. We need to understand fundamentally that God doesn't separate your life out into compartments. He doesn't have boxes. Well, these are the things that I have you do for me. These are the things you do for yourself. These are provisions for the flesh that I've made. There is zero provision for your flesh in the gospel. It gets killed so the life of Christ can live through you in every area. It is not more spiritual for you to live some monastic lifestyle. My wife got on me for this when I kind of bashed kind of the, the modern prayer movement in America and even missions, some of the modern uh, missions organizations and mission movements. And please hear me, there is an actual calling for that. We believe that. There are those that are called by God to do that. And if that's your calling, by all means, pursue it with all of your might. But don't think that in choosing that, you're being more holy or more sacred than those that God would call to work a job, to raise a family. Because there is purpose in what God is doing there, and it's all for him. He is glorified. He is magnified. He is made much of as we live our lives. The last thing I want us to think is, well, if revival would just happen, and we could have services every night. Look, there's a bunch of us who've been through that. And I can tell you, just, let me just be real honest and real right now. There was a choice that had to get made for us as a church. My wife and I had decided to raise uh, funds for us to live off of. We, we went around to churches that we knew and sent out support letters when we planted Sozo. And at the, the, all those people's commitments kind of came to an end as we approached this last summer. So we had to make a call. We had to make a decision. Do we, do we go back out to all those churches and begathon them for more money? I mean, praiseathon. I mean, begathon them from. I mean, petition their hearts before the Lord to consider supporting his work in the ministry of Sozo in the city of Spokane? Or do I go get a job? And I remember feeling very uncomfortable. I had pastors telling me, like, oh, come on, we'll come. We'll we'll take up another big offering for you. We'll put out the little cards. We'll put your family up on the screen because your kids are cute and people give money to cute kids. Maybe get a puppy and we'll put it up there too and we'll just guilt the crap out of people. We'll get a big offering. And it didn't sit right with either my wife or I. So we began to pray and say, okay, Lord, would you provide for me a job? Because here's the truth. When you've been a youth pastor for the last 12 years, you may as well have been on Mars for the last 12 years as far as getting a job is concerned. Like, what did you do? I preached at kids and led worship and watched YouTube videos and hung out at sporting events. 
I had kids in my house until like 1130. Is there a job where I could get paid for that? Yeah, babysitting. <laughs> um, yeah, but I'm only good with teenagers. Little kids freak me out if they're not genetically me. So, um, and I remember going on job after job interview after job interview, and like literally that's kind of, I mean, you modern, you know, you try to spin it, but that's pretty much what you have to say. Like, I'm kind of good at graphic stuff. It just takes me a long time. <laughs> I know how to make funny videos. I got a whole list of them on YouTube. No? Okay, thank you. And God has since provided for me a, a job, and I, I've got a great job working for a company. And, and here's why I bring all that up to say. I feel no less spiritual. In fact, I'll be honest with you, my relation with God has gotten better since I've started working. And my prayer for you is that you would understand that that's his hope for you. That as you're at your job, that is your opportunity to worship him. And the presence of God can be with you at work just as much, if not more, as it can while we're here singing about him and singing to him and interacting with him. That's his hope. As you're swinging a hammer, as you're flipping burgers, as you're selling knives, come on some college students, as you're, come on. Don't do it, by the way. You're going to sell knives to your parents and your aunts and nobody else. Please don't look at the knives in my kitchen. Um, God wants to interact with you. God wants to be intimate with you in the midst of all. But what's the point of your life? It's to glorify and magnify Jesus. Because, say it with me, it's all about Jesus. Let's stand to our feet. Here's what I'd like to do this morning. Um, Typically, this is the portion of our service where we would kind of call for repentance. We would call for... um, call us to make a move and a shift toward Jesus in an area that maybe he is bringing some conviction to us in our lives. And it's not that I don't want to do that, but I want to do it in maybe a different atmosphere than we're used to as a church. Because I feel like part of what, let me see how I want to word this here so that it makes sense. Part of the design of God in putting church at the beginning of our week is to help us reset. Check the connection. So there's two kind of mindsets, two kind of thoughts and thinking when it comes to kind of our spiritual life, right? There's, maybe we've heard this before, people that, well, Sunday's my recharge, right? I plug my battery in and I recharge my battery. I think that's the wrong idea. Because here's the truth. Your battery will run dry before the end of the week if this is your recharge. But if you abandon your battery and embrace a power cord and say, I'm going to work within the limits that God has given me, and I'm going to just stay plugged into him all the time, he becomes your source. He becomes the life. He becomes the ability for you to do all that you do. This is our time to check that connection. How, How solid is that connection? Have I wandered off? This is our chance to engage with him and reaffirm, reconnect, reestablish that bond, reestablish that reality. And so what I want to do this morning is to celebrate him, to make much of him as we go from this place. And we're going to enter back into worship and we'll I'll come back down here and we'll receive tithes and offerings. I've got a few quick little announcements for you, but mostly just read your bulletin. 
then we'll leave. But let's celebrate him this morning. Sure, if there's repentance that needs to happen, if there's, if there's a transformation, if there's sin in your life, if there's a bad attitude toward your vocation, toward your family, toward your spouse, by all means, let's repent of that. But let's repent in an atmosphere of celebrating his goodness and his mercy and his kindness toward us. Amen.